listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 162. In this episode, we're going to take a hard look at what's going on behind the brown badge at UPS and what's going on with the contract conflict and the Teamsters. But first, the news. Missouri workers recently celebrated when they nixed a right-to-work law on an unprecedented ballot vote. But now they're back in the trenches, this time with a courtroom battle against another law that threatens to gut public sector unions through a back door, simply by getting rid of more public sector workers. The law would dramatically weaken job protections and work rules and would thus make it much easier to fire public sector workers. The law, which was pushed under the previous governorship of Eric Greitens and has continued under the current administration, would designate an entire swath of the workforce as at-will employees, and that would destroy basic just cause protection against arbitrary dismissal and would also undermine due process by easing the rules for firing someone who is merely accused of inappropriate behavior, not found to be actually guilty. The case is now facing a court challenge brought by the unions, and they hope to stop it before it's implemented because it would impact some 25,000 workers. They argue that the law violates workers' collective bargaining rights as guaranteed under the state constitution's Bill of Rights, and they also fear that by empowering elected officials and agency heads to fire basically whoever they want in many cases, the legislation would politicize the state government and undermine the merit system. And that's currently based on passing civil service exams precisely to take politics out of the admissions process. The law reflects a broad shift in public sector workforces around the country, chipping away at their collective bargaining rights and politically suppressing public worker unions. The public sector union movement remains a bulwark of strength for labor as private sector unions decline. And it should be noted that this law was passed in exchange for a nominal raise given to the state's lowest paid workers. In the wake of the Janus decision at the Supreme Court, it seems all the more outrageous that just as public sector workers are losing power across the nation under federal law, the unions of Missouri are seeing their precious remaining rights at work being traded for a pittance. The campaign for fast food unions has been heating up on both sides of the Atlantic, but over in Britain recently, the strikes by McDonald's workers, or McStrike as they call it, were recently combined with strikes by workers at slightly more upscale restaurants and pubs, as well as drivers who deliver food from all of these places through apps like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. To explain it all to us, we talked to former Deliveroo driver Callum Kent, who is now working on a book about Deliveroo and is also an editor at Notes From Below. Tell us about the the latest mixed strike in the UK and the inclusion of Uber Eats and Deliveroo drivers. So over the last month in the UK, we've essentially seen a combined series of strikes by workers in the hospitality and platform sectors. Um, the high point of these was on October the 4th, we had a strike um, titled the Fast Food Shutdown, which combined the MOOC strike, a strike at a pub chain called Weatherspoons, a strike at TGI Friday's restaurants, um, with also strike action by platform workers working for Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Now, that combined action um, was obviously a very exciting development because it brought together lots of different workforces, um, as opposed to previous muck strikes where we've had just a few McDonald's out on strike. This was actually quite clearly a national phenomenon. So these platform workers were striking in cities all over the UK. 
um, and they were kind of fighting alongside in their very um, kind of spontaneous um, wildcat action. They were fighting alongside much more formalized trade unionism. So it was a really exciting synthesis, but it also takes place within a broader context where a few days later, on October the 9th, we had our first ever national Uber taxi strike, yeah. which saw yeah. 300 Uber drivers um, besieging Uber HQ in East London here. Um, and it's taken part alongside like a wider cycle of struggle. And so that, I think, is what makes it so exciting, is that this wasn't just a one-off. It's playing into a wider pattern of mobilization. So talk a little bit about the organizing model that's going on, particularly with these delivery drivers and the sort of app-based economy. So I think the definitive thing about food platform workers and platform workers in general is that they're not employees, right? They're, they're formally independent contractors. Now, this status has been designed by uh, the companies that, that um, don't employ them, but the companies that provide them with work um, as a way of getting out of paying for sick pay, holiday pay, any of these kind of statutory obligations. Um, but it also means that trade union law just doesn't apply to them. Right. Now, that means that these workers are often facing very difficult conditions. They're facing low wages. They're facing high risks. They're very dangerous jobs. Um, they're often having to pay huge amounts of money on petrol, on renting cars, on renting bikes, all this kind of stuff. Um, so they're very militant. They're very upset about their working conditions. Um, and they also have no capacity to form official trade union relationships right. and are not restrained by the law. Right. Now, what this essentially leads into is a situation where workers across the UK, ever since August 2016, have been going on strike again and again and again, using what we would call, you know, very spontaneous tactics. So every single strike is a wildcat, because there's no way of them formally um, coordinating a work stoppage with the employer. They don't, they can't give them notice, they can't um, do any of the things that an official trade union would do. Um, and this organising model is really based on quite strong, what we call it, informal work groups. So in every city, there'll be a series of WhatsApp groups or encrypted messenger chats, mm -hmm. which will connect the vast majority of workers in that city. So say in London, um, every kind of borough or zone of London has its own um, WhatsApp chats, which put together workers, particularly um, they're structured around like the McDonald's in a city. So a particularly big McDonald's will have a WhatsApp group of all the riders who tend to do deliveries out of that McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And these are the basic kind of cell structure out of which these national strikes have been built. So rather than recruiting everyone to a trade union, then having a vote via the trade union to go on strike, um, the IWW, who've been leading a lot of this, and the industrial workers of the world, instead have a career network model, which is built on their experiences of the past two years, and basically works by connecting up these WhatsApp chats um, and kind of federating them into a kind of hybrid union form, yeah. whereby these workers who are going on strike often aren't members of the IWW, um, but they're part of these like, wider informal groups that are capable of mobilizing workers in their city on very short notice. Mm -hmm. So this is broadly what they're calling the network model because it doesn't rely on kind of what we officially call trade unionism. Uh, like I said, only a small number of these workers are actually dues-paying members of unions. Instead, workers are kind of really self-organizing this conflict. Um, and it's increasingly reaching higher and higher pitches. So, I mean, when we're talking about the first ever national strikes, I mean, as far as I'm aware... Um, there have been other strikes across Europe. There's been a wave of strike action across Europe. But this is the first time that in a single country you've seen shutdowns with thousands of workers in multiple cities. Um, so this self-organization is reaching an increasingly higher pitch. I think we're really seeing these platform workers now setting an example to the rest of the labor movement in the UK.
And so what did that look like on the ground on the, the day of this big coordinated strike? If the workers aren't governed by labor law, that also means they're not governed by restrictions on what a strike can be. Yeah, and you see workers doing very different things. Um, part of the fact that they're so spontaneous, these platform strikes, means that um, workers can totally innovate and do what they want. So um, there was a strike in Plymouth recently where the workers didn't hold a strike day demonstration or a picket or whatever. Plymouth is quite a small city. So they actually managed to, every, every worker they knew of on the city was on a WhatsApp chat and they all agreed to just stay in bed. Um, so their strike actually had no visible mobilization whatsoever apart from the app didn't work. Um, but on the other sides of the coin, you can also have these huge demonstrations where hundreds of riders on mopeds roam around cities in a kind of flying picket slash demonstration model um, where they'll go to. So in London, um, we recently saw 300 um, Uber drivers um, on October the 9th, but also a few weeks before that, um, 300 Uber Eats moped riders um, where they kind of descend on this central junction, East, East London, shut it down with their mopeds. Um, and then drive around a series of restaurants in kind of flying picket models. So depending on what you're looking at, on the day it can be very different. Um, but often you're looking at a combination of specific restaurant pickets, a more general strike demonstration, which kind of takes on the form of um, a kind of a critical mass demonstration, um, or like people just staying at home and uh, playing on their Xboxes. So it can, it's a very diverse, tactically diverse movement. So speaking of, of diverse, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on this show and others and everywhere is the the way that people who have, you know, that the, the working class is changing, that you get a lot of people who went to college and perhaps have a lot of student debt who are now working on these platforms or in these restaurants and pubs. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the a sort of composition of the working class within these different layers of what was going on in the strike. I think this is one of the things that was really exciting to see on October the 4th. Um, so it, it's the whole thing started with a walkout from a few of the Weatherspoons pubs at midnight um, because the workers there do their shifts until 2 a.m. usually. And so there were a couple of people who had been on shift up until midnight who needed to walk out and go on strike um, as kind of midnight happened. And I was here in Brighton as that was taking place. And there was this amazing sense of solidarity where at the moment, um, UK university students are just coming back to university after their summer break. Right. Um, and there's this period where new students get very, very drunk and it's kind of called freshers. Um, <laughs> and uh, these students who are out on their like freshers nights out, they were kind of 18, 19, very young, um, were having a university level education. Um, you would classically not think, them, think of them as natural allies of like low paid service workers. Right. Actually saw these workers walking out and there was an amazing sense of solidarity between the two. Um, and this was repeated again and again over the day. We saw all sorts of diverse fractions of the working class actually seeing an increasing level of unity in a common cause, particularly over wages. Um, so whatever platforms they were working for, whatever companies they were working for, whatever their specific demands were, there was a kind of unity of diverse sections behind this demand for higher wages. Um, so for the platforms in particular, I mean, in London, um, you'll see a very large dynamic where there are a lot of migrants who are kind of trapped in these in uh, food delivery work right. or in uh, Uber taxi work because they don't have the language skills to get other jobs. They might have a regular status. There's all kinds of factors um, which means that a lot of the workforce there is, is heavily made up of migrants. 
Um, but then elsewhere in the country, um, so down in, for example, Bristol or Glasgow, you will have um, delivery strikes and Uber Eats strikes on the same day as part of the same action coordinated by the same union, where it's mostly cycle couriers who are, you know, recent graduates or students or people working a second job alongside an office job, all these kind of situations. So I think what we're seeing in the UK at the moment with this kind of organisation is that we're actually engaging with um, the new working class, the young working class in a sector or a series of sectors with no histories of organisation. Right. Trade union right. density in the hospitality sector in the UK is at 2.9%. I mean, 2.9% of workers in the sector are in trade unions. Mm -hmm. And yet they are in many ways leading um, the fight for better wages even though they're in kind of a sector that has historically had huge problems with, with unionisation. So I think we're seeing a really um, interesting moment of recomposition where some of these movements, which, you know, by conventional logics shouldn't really exist, and if they do exist, should have very limited solidarity with one another, right. are actually proving that um, something quite dramatic is going on here. That was Callum Kent of Notes from Below. We will put links to his writing up at the Descent website. There's been a momentary victory for immigrant workers nationwide thanks to a key court ruling against the Trump administration on TPS, or Temporary Protected Status. That's the special legal reprieve periodically granted to migrants from several countries who have been facing a humanitarian crisis. It can be renewed periodically, and it basically relieves them from any threat of deportation. By shielding them from deportation, TPS makes it possible for immigrants to secure steady jobs, uh, homes, financial support for their families, uh, and long-term economic security, as well as union membership. The administration now argues that the program, which covers four countries, Haiti, Nicaragua, Sudan, and El Salvador, has been abused because it was only meant as a short-term reprieve, not permanent legal authorization. But last month, San Francisco federal judge Edward Chen suspended Trump's orders to cancel TPS for the migrants, and that puts everything in limbo and could also save the remaining TPS people who are from Somalia, South Sudan, Honduras, Nepal, Syria, and Yemen from deportation as well. Now the race is on to make that temporary relief stretch for as long as possible until a permanent solution can be found. Worker activists and increasingly some progressive unions are undertaking an unprecedented campaign to save TPS through the courts and through mass mobilization of their members. I talked to John Doherty of IUPAT, a major construction workers union, about the role that their union is playing to demand justice for their members who have TPS status. So in terms of our union specifically, we do a lot of work around uh, giving a voice to uh, workers that are trying to organize their workplace, capture more benefits um, to increase their, their strength and collective bargaining, and just to have the basic human rights that that every worker deserves on the job, including safety, training, and, and have their wages paid on time. There's, there's a lot of wage theft. There's a lot of misclassification that's pretty much rampant throughout the construction industry that we try to curb. In doing that, um, we have a lot of members that are TPS recipients, uh, and we do our best to provide services for them where needed. Um, what you see right now, including what's going on with the ICE raids, with uh, ending TPSs, basically psychological warfare on workers out there in the construction industry uh, to keep them from speaking up against bad contractors and exploitation. Um, and this is happening nationwide in the biggest construction boom that we've had in uh -huh. decades. 
have you seen TPS members actually being reluctant to come forward now or being more fearful about the possible ramifications for immigration if they do come forward to, say, report a violation? Yes, absolutely. We've been trying to gather uh, personal stories and worker voices from across our membership and many people, uh, some who are willing to speak up at first and then after talking with their families, um, would rather not speak up for fear of putting their target on their family. In the long term, what are you aiming for? I mean, there's talk about people who have TPS now, they're actually seeking a permanent solution, so they don't have to worry about having to constantly be extended year after year. Absolutely. I mean, all it does is put undue stress on on workers out there in the construction industry. Um, It hurts many, many TPS recipients who have been here for decades, contributing to their communities, uh, becoming, you know, upstanding community members in their in their faith communities and in their school systems and contributing to their local economies, Uh, especially at a time when there's so much divestment in public funds for uh, basic services like education, healthcare, and and everything else. I mean, these people have been contributing the whole time that they've here. Uh, The rhetoric around that these are dangerous criminals and criminalians and they're all MS-13 is completely false. There's 300,000 TPS members out there right now that are in jeopardy of losing their their status here in the United States. And that's not to say that they'll all be deported immediately either. We see this more as a shell game uh, as to how the underground economy works, especially in construction and development, um, where at the same time that there is such an outcry for skilled a skilled labor workforce, they are talking about deporting 300,000 workers and to cap it all off, expand the H-2B visa program. So it doesn't doesn't take much to take a look at that and say, you know, who is the guy in chief? Who is the guy in charge that's doing this? He's a developer at HOT. Um, that's where he's made his money. He's made his money by evading taxes. He's made his money by uh, working with contractors who get a discount on labor. Uh, there's no discount on materials out there. That's where they look for it for. That's why the underground economy exists. And there's also, you know, there's, misinformation out there that unions are required to in in order to join as a as a requirement of membership that they have to show uh, documentation or or status Uh, that's that's just not the case Uh, we have a lot of members our criteria is that you want better wages you want a collective voice and you want you want more power in your community to, to get that out of corporations who have so much large profit and exploit the underground economy every chance that they get that was John Doherty of IUPAT. Long-time listeners to Belabored know that I'm somewhat obsessed with and working on a book about the idea of the labor of love and the way it is used to compel and discipline labor under neoliberalism. So naturally, I wanted to talk to you today about the Chicago Lyric Opera Orchestra strike. Beginning on Tuesday, October 9th, the orchestra at the Opera House walked off the job over proposals to cut staff, performances, and radio broadcasts of the opera. Management argued that their audience was down. The musicians, who are members of Chicago Federation of Musicians Local 102208, countered that cutting performances and the radio broadcasts would only shrink that audience further. They also noted that the budget of the opera had gone from $60.4 million in 2012 to $84.5 million in 2017, at the same time as the orchestra's share of that budget shrank from 14.6% to 11.9%. The CEO, though, had gotten a raise of 18% from 2014 to 2017, including a 16% raise just in 2016, 
right after the orchestra musicians had agreed to a wage-neutral contract with health care cuts. The CEO's salary is over $700,000 a year, which is about 12 times the musician's base salary. So he wanted to eliminate four musicians' jobs, but he could actually afford 12 musicians out of his own salary. Just saying. One might think he was getting raises for cutting workers' wages. But of course, the pressure is on in careers like this, the pressure from management to operate on a more ruthlessly profit-oriented framework, and the pressure in turn on the artist to swallow wage cuts, layoffs, a shortened season in order to maintain jobs that they love. We are on strike because we will not and cannot accept a lyric opera of Chicago that is nothing but a pale shadow of its former self, the union wrote in a statement announcing the strike. If Anthony Freud, yes, that's his name, and his crew abdicate their responsibility as the stewards of this organization, then the musicians of the orchestra will gladly take up that cause. World-class musical companies like this are rare. It's not easy for the workers to simply go get another job any more than it is easy for management to replace them. Yet when management does not seem to lose anything for their plan, which is losing money, it's easy to note that the crunch only goes one way. The workers who make the opera worth seeing must absorb cuts to keep the opera they love alive, while the bosses who don't really seem to care if it lives or dies keep getting raises year after year. The strike is over. The union accepted a deal that does cut the amount of performances and the number of workers through attrition, though not as far as management had wanted. The musicians said that they needed to end the strike to be fair, in part to other performers who had already agreed to contracts, and they did agree to a wage increase over the life of the contract. In a telling note, the New York Times story on the strike's end was headlined, Strike Over, Lyric Opera of Chicago Can Resume Business. Business. This week, the labor movement is all in a kerfuffle over the question of just who gets to decide when a contract is ratified. Specifically, we've been watching the struggle among the Teamsters at UPS, where the membership who voted to ratify a contract voted it down, but the leadership of the union has decided to ratify it anyway. The contract contains a provision that members who opposed it liken to two-tier contracts in other industries. It introduces a new, lower-paid position of hybrid drivers. To explain to us just what's happening here, what its ramifications are, and what happens next, we spoke to labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, who we are pleased to welcome for his first time on Belabored. He is Distinguished Professor in the Department of History at University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy, and the author of many books on American labor and global capitalism. Start out by giving us a little bit of background on this contract battle at UPS this year. Oh, yes. First of all, the, 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 I think the big thing is UPS is a very successful company in a booming industry. I mean, <laughs> online sales. I mean, this, mm-hmm. is a, this is a huge part of the economy growing rapidly. Amazon, you know, is the biggest company in the, in the country or something almost by value. So UPS, we're talking up here about not some... Uh, a marginal trucking firm or something. We're talking about something at the absolute center of the of the new economy, and it's doing very well, and it's booming. Okay, so that's just, that's the very first thing. Right. So you know, one would think that this would be a place for you know employment and work. You know, workers doing well. So then, of course, uh, UPS, its big competitor is FedEx. Right. which is non-union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also Amazon as well is a competitor, which is, is sort of creating its own delivery um, uh, kind of situation. So UPS, which is, uh, has been unionized uh, for a long time and uh, has a very engaged uh, workforce, it's competing anyway with non-union. So that's, that's always an issue. Again, with this, you know, this question of 
you know, seven days a week delivery, uh, you know, practically 24-hour day delivery. I mean, this is what the new um, uh, internet, uh, you know, world is creating. UPS wants to have weekend uh, people you know, and part-timers, and what they want is flexibility. They want flexibility. Management wants flexibility. That's the phrase they want. Right. Sounds great, you know. Uh, but what that what that that wrecks havoc with uh, with um, uh, ordinary workers because their their lives they want you know more predictable lives. And then of course the, one of the big demands. Uh, and this is, uh, was, you know, for a, um, uh, a second tier, the company wanted a two tier workforce, you know, where you have a, a sort of weekend part-time, uh, you know, workers who earn less money and have less, uh, benefits. And maybe after a long time, they can work their way up into the regular workforce. But that, that was, you know, a, a part of the, part of the issue. And so uh, they could see that would erode labor standards and erode, you know, their sense of you know, having these regular jobs. Then there are other issues as well, but that that was one of the major issues. Then, of course, you you have this situation where the you know 54% of the workers voted against the contract, but nevertheless, unless I guess it was a majority uh, in uh, total workers actually voted, then it would then the leadership could declare it, it ratified. So this is creating a well complicated and 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 unresolved issue because there are, there are a lot of I was looking at a lot of side agreements that that, that are kind of uh, individual locals or regions have, and mm-hmm. and that creates a, another level of um, difficulty. And, and in some of those cases, uh, uh, regional or local uh, drivers voted 95% against some of these specific agreements that, that just just applied to them. So you have a kind of um, I wouldn't call it chaos exactly, but it's certainly a, a very unsettled situation right now. Speaking of chaos, what exactly were the, the steps that led to the current impasse? They, they began negotiating, uh, you know, way back almost a year ago, uh, and you know, it was it was you know, UPS was being aggressive in wanting to create these uh, two tier jobs. The, the the union and the and the, wanted to have uh, as they had in actually two, two decades ago in a big victory in 1997, uh, where there'd been a big national strike and. The uh, the union had actually won ten thousand uh, you know regular jobs. That was a big deal. Uh, they again wanted to, they wanted to win they wanted to get a commitment from the company for um, uh, full time uh, you know regular jobs and incre- increasing numbers of them because again the, the thing is booming the whole the whole industry is booming and you know the, 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 then you got into the uh, uh, question of you know what kind of jobs we made permanent and and this was this is this was uh, uh, became a subject of contention how many new jobs are actually being created were they being created out of out of some of these part-timers and this became a contentious question uh and then of course uh, there was a big campaign uh, which uh, teamsters for democratic union which is the op- was the opposition group it's it, interesting that i just say to your to your listeners there have been opposition groups in in unions going back to the 19th century, but the Teamsters for Democratic Union, which has been in existence since the late 1970s, is one of the the longest lasting, Mm -hmm. most successful, uh, and relatively powerful opposition groups. And so they began campaigning for a contract that that they could live with and and, uh, worried that the Hoffa leadership would um, sign a, a contract that was inadequate. And they, they had a very good uh, uh, kind of educational mobilizing campaign. And it paid off in that the leadership was, was defeated on it, on the, you know, on the merits, 54%. But again, that's very unusual because in a, in a, in a, in a union, uh, all the levers of, of persuasion, of, uh, of influence, of, uh, you know, are in the hands of the, 
administration, the people who are negotiating the contract, the people who, who want to put it across. And so it's very, it's very unusual for ordinary workers rank and file to, to reject the, to reject the contract. Uh, um, but here, you know, they did. And, um, and UPS has been a, a long time historic center of opposition to the more conservative leadership of that union, the Hoffa leadership. So um, and that's you know that's part of the, that's part of the background in, the, uh, in this case. You know, yeah. What was the the key to the TDU um, argument against it? What was leadership arguing was good about it? They got a a pretty overwhelming result in a strike vote a couple months ago. Why do you mm-hmm. think that the leadership was unwilling to push this to a strike? The leadership doesn't want to conduct a strike. For them, it's, it's always more convenient, better to get a, get a settlement, you know. But also a strike would enhance the, the power of the um, their opposition. That is, the people who would be leading the strike on the ground would be TDU. And, and the Hoffa people don't want that. It would, it would, it would enhance the prestige and, and power and, 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 and uh, influence of TDU. So they, they, they don't want that. Uh, that. That's one thing. You know, and, and they, they've never wanted that. That's what happened in two, two decades ago, and happens every time there's a kind of any kind of strike of that sort. The second thing is that uh, you know, in today, strikes are dangerous. So they are in fact dangerous because when you have half the industry is controlled by um, a non-union operation, you have a strike in the unionized sector. Uh, then you know, you, you, it's conceivable that you could, you could lose you could lose um, market share to the to the non-union people. I mean, and so you know, I mean, that happens. That's always that's always the case. You want to therefore a quick victory, but uh, I'm sure that was one of the things that the the Hoffa people um, considered. And, and again, they've been in, they've been in power now for Jesus, I mean, 20, 20, more than twenty years, or quite a long time. You know, and you did you get a certain kind of you know uh, you get kind of stolid and 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 sort of you know complacent. And the one reason we haven't heard much from from uh, Jimmy Hoffa and his leadership team right now is they're on a trip to Singapore. I don't know what they're doing there, but they they took off for Singapore just as the uh, the votes came in, and they'll be back. But you know they that's that's the kind that's what they want to do. You know. Yeah, but what were they sort of arguing that was. Why did they say that the membership should vote for this contract? Um, you know, take a bird in the hand. Uh, there was there was a wage increase, of course. Mm-hmm. The two tier uh, scheme that, that that UPS wants to put it, it's not going to affect you. You're going to still have your job. The, the two tier people are for new hires. So what the heck? You know, go ahead. I mean, that that's the that's the the conservative argument. And uh, you know, we're gonna. Um, um, you know, it, it, it will, it, you know, you, there will be something of a wage, a wage increase, et cetera. So, but, but, you know, the, the opposition would say, no, ultimately this is eroding uh, labor standards and eroding the power of the union and, and two-tier, I mean, two-tier pay schemes have had a 30, 40 year history and they are disastrous for unions. They corrode and erode the sense of, uh, of just a, a union and it becomes very difficult it always creates fights within the union inevitably there's a has to be a, a big push eventually to to get the uh, the low, low paid people up to the up to the regular standard and it's a terrible idea management loves it because it's they can hire new people uh, at this low wage but it, it destroys the union uh, over time so going back to the actual vote itself um I think many outsiders would be surprised that uh, even if a majority votes the contract down, somehow majoritarian rule doesn't apply here. Can you yeah, right, talk right. about the rules that led up to this and what is the history of that rule and um, and how widespread is this among unions? 
I think it was a couple of decades ago, I think, a rule was passed that unless 50% of everyone actually voted in a uh, election, then it, it, less than that, uh, then a majority of those who did vote wouldn't necessarily be enough to, to carry the day. I think you needed a, a supermajority, a 60% or something, or two, maybe even two-thirds. Uh, and what happened, I believe, was 44% of people voted in this case so that, you know, the, the leadership invoked this constitutional provision. Now, that, that hasn't been provoked, it hasn't been invoked at other times. At other times when the leadership uh, wanted to sort of uh, keep negotiating or go back to the table, um, they would do that even when, even when uh, you know the, uh, the vote was, uh, um, you know, uh, the proportion who voted was not not as many. And as again, as I say, in some of these, what gets really complicated and something fully I don't fully understand is that there are these supplemental contracts, several, uh, probably a, two dozen of them, uh, all around the country, and individual locals or regions voted on them, and, and some of them were rejected by 95 percent. So. You know that that means that uh, what you're going to ram some of those through. I don't I don't think that even that's the case. And the uh, I think the thing is Taylor, the the, guy, the chief negotiator for the union, sort of made the point that well, this uh, the this <laughs> this rejection <laughs> and then our, our thing is it's carried doesn't really mean anything because the the the, uh, the uh, UPS can't get into operation unless these supplemental agreements are are also agreed to, and many of them are are, are have been have been rejected. So that's why I call it a little bit of a mess and a little bit of chaos. And I think it's uh, indeterminate right, right now. Uh, certainly the, the issue isn't over and the, uh, the opposition continues to mobilize against it. Yeah. And, and we'll see whether the, um, uh, the Hoffa leadership is determined to ram this down uh, people's throats. I'm not sure they are actually on this one. Yeah, that was my next question actually was kind of what is membership doing? What is TDU doing? What can they do in this situation? <clears throat> There are these locals which are, which are very much against it. Mm-hmm. And typically, the big locals, the big ones, the key locals in New York and some of the big cities, they vote they vote against these things. And the T- and TDU is you know making the argument that uh, this uh, that, they, that the rejection is is legitimate, <laughs> and that the and that the uh, uh, leadership should, certainly should not uh, try to to to, uh, to declare this uh, this ratified. And again, I just from reading some of the statements. I think that the, the leadership is, is, is thinking twice about whether they're going to try to ram this down people's throats. I, I have a feeling that they, that, that, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think that's going to happen, actually. Uh, Hoff, again, Hoff and his friends are often in the Far East, and they should be getting back and in data. But uh, maybe maybe that once they come back, they'll, they'll have, make a, have a meeting and have a decision about whether how tough to be on this thing. But I, I will, you know, we'll see what happens. So meanwhile, anyway, uh, you know, the, the sort of on the ground is what's, what's taking place. And if the TDU is able to mobilize and hand out leaflets, and they've been doing that, uh, and, and Hoff is much weaker uh, these days than he was um, in previous election eras. He only won um, uh, a small majority in the last election against a, a virtually unknown uh, opposition person. So mm-hmm. the leadership may decide not to try to, to push this too far. So what would the next steps be after this, if, if the vote stands, um, what, what kind of recourse do they have, or what is the potential political fallout that will result from Well, this? Good, good point, uh, good point. Uh, I mean, I think in some of these locals uh, where they still have to negotiate these supplemental agreements, there you're going to have really tough bargaining going on, for sure. And they know they have a lot of leverage because UPS, the national company, you can't just operate part of it. 
And I think that, you know, the, I mean, the, the TDU, it's interesting. Again, it's very unusual. They're an opposition group that's been, been around for decades. And, you know, the, uh, you know, people like uh, the official leadership of the union, you know, has to take into account uh, the existence of this group and their capacity to, to mobilize an opposition. And I think uh, that's, a, that's, over time, that's been a salutary thing. Uh, the, the Teamsters are not, I should put this, they aren't as bad a union as they used to be. They're, they're, you know, the Teamsters have this sort of uh, iconic, uh, uh, almost cultural uh, resonance in American life, you know, as this, this corrupt union. But, they, but they're better than they used to be, and I think part of that has to do with the existence of TDU and the existence of oppositional locals in, in, at various times in various places around the country. So this fight, you know, goes on. The, the, there's a transition in the leadership of TDU. Uh, Ken Path is retiring, uh, but you know I think they're 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 well in hand to, to continue on. And this this organization is is uh, which I've been following all my life, uh, uh, literally <laughs> since I uh, was my twenties. You know they're going to continue in existence, and that's quite a remarkable thing. Speaking of history, um, can you compare this with the 1997 strike um, or well, other memorable right. strikes in the past? Well, that was a strike, right? And the 97 strike, I was I was very engaged with. Uh, the 97 strike was a model strike. It was a, well, it was incredible. Um, it was a strike. It turned out that the, uh, the again the there was a there was a reform leadership then under under uh, Kerry was the, uh, uh, the the president of the union uh, at that time, and he was mobile helped kind of mobilize the membership uh, in favor of the strike. And he had you know with with TDU was sort of his ally at the time, uh, and they did they did a remarkable job in mobilizing. It turns out that that uh, UPS people knew a lot of the, the customers. So when the strike took place, it was remarkable that there was tremendous support for the strike. Uh, the AFL-CIO was entirely behind it. And actually, so too, to, to some extent, was the Clinton administration in, in, in a way. And the strike was a victory. They, they did win a better contract and a guarantee of more jobs. The victory was almost instantly sort of tarnished by the indictment against Kerry for um, uh, finance irregularities in terms of, of raising money, and this this gets into a, he he eventually was was cleared, uh, but uh, but the damage was done, and as a result, kind of the sense of momentum that that strike had generated was sort of dissipated, and then eventually uh, uh, Kerry was taken out as union leader, and Hoffa was able to that's the current Hoffa was able to come come in uh, shortly thereafter, so. Uh, but it was, but the actual strike itself, the dynamics of the strike itself, it was a model of militancy and organization, and, and it was successful. What will the sort of long-term impact of this latest vote be, and, and what will be the ramifications if this contract goes through more or less in its current form? Um, will that set a precedent um, in the current labor movement or for the Teamsters? I would say it will not set a precedent in the labor movement because the movement is is sort of fragmented to some extent. The public sector has problems, and, and which is actually now the biggest part of the, the, the union movement, the union movement has its own issues and, and, and et cetera. In most ratification votes of, of bargaining uh, issues, you don't have this uh, peculiar and weird uh, situation that the Teamsters have. Maybe in some of the construction trades you do, but, but they not, not, you, that isn't the case um, in some of you know in the, in the old line industrial unions. It's certainly not in in SEIU or Unite Here or AFSCME. 
uh, there it's just a straight up or down, you know, whether you, you know, the thing will be ratified. So I don't see this issue, no matter what, whatever is going on, uh, and whether those sort of wildcat strikes or, or local strikes can, that, that actually break out, I don't see it having a um, um, widespread impact. And this, this reflects a larger sort of problem for the union. We used to have something called pattern bargaining, you know, where, where one big union, you know, wins something and then everyone else follows through or, or, or employers otherwise think, oh, we better, we better meet that, you know. That was big, true. It used to be in the big industrial unions. That doesn't exist anymore, really. Uh, it's much more fragmented. So what's happening in the Teamsters is sort of what's happening in the Teamsters. And um, I, I, I would doubt that, that, that one out of a hundred uh, one out of a thousand, uh, you know, either unionists or managers in some other, in in the public sector or even in, uh, uh, you know, uh, steel or Verizon, you know, or, or telecommunications uh, that they that they even know about this. Yeah. And so, to wrap up, we've been in the middle of an, um, are probably still in the middle of a, a strike wave among teachers, the Verizon strike recently. Well, first, my question is, if the contract doesn't go through, is there still the chance of a strike at, at UPS? And then what does this sort of mean in the context of all of that increased activity? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, well, I know I think it's un- undoubtedly that there's a, uh, a boost was given to the to the more militant faction of the union by some of this activity. And, and of course, they did demand, you know, fifteen dollars for the for the uh, uh, part timers. This fifteen dollars become has become a new benchmark, which is, mm-hmm. you know, in lots of places is being put forward. Um uh, yes, I, I do think I do think there's a certain there's more energy. Um, the approval of unionism has gone up. The world of of of, of labor, working class struggle today resembles that of the sort of before the Wagner Act, before the New Deal, because the legal structures are are, are become so uh, weakened or or eviscerated or or turned on their head. That, they, that you don't really have legal structures for, you know, to enable those school teachers, for example, to actually form a union. And, and, and I mean, there's a union was there, but with a, you know, kind of a more secure union with recognized uh, bargaining rights in most of those states. Or for that matter, why isn't FedEx uh, uh, unionized? I mean, here's a, you know, this is a company that has uh, the same problems as UPS uh, and the same issues. And well, the reason is it's it's headquartered in, in Memphis, and it's and uh, the has it has a a a, a vicious and sophisticated uh, leadership of the company, which is determined to stop unionization, and they and they have done that using actually the Railway Labor Act, which under which they're, they're they're covered. So in a way, there was never that act was never designed to, to be an anti-union institution rather than a pro-union. So. Um, so we, we, we sort of have a, a kind of a certain amount of, uh, of agitation and absurd, uh, interest and consciousness, but the, the legal uh, administrative structures aren't there to create a mass union movement overnight. Uh, but I think that the, um, that, uh, you know, class questions are coming to the fore. And uh, for all its problems, the, the fight for 15 was a, was a uh, sort of ideologically, it was a big victory. Yeah. Um, 
to move beyond ideological victories, I mean, the, the demand was for a fight, a fight for 15 and a union, right? That's so right. Um, despite this renewed um, sort of energy around striking, yeah. Um, yeah. the fact is, you know, unions themselves are, are sort of in crisis under this administration right. and right. Um, facing, you know, God knows what at the NLRB. Um, so going forward, I mean, you, the teamsters are actually, I mean, UPS is one of the um, one of the uh, in one of the industries that's actually doing well. Uh, what you see now yeah, right. is a lot of unionized sectors going down. So, mm-hmm. what do you see right. as the future of unions? Well, I mean, I think I think obviously you need to leapfrog to the to those uh, um, you know service sectors, uh, everything from hospital to retail uh, to uh, uh, to food to food. Uh, you know that um, you know which are the the growth sectors. Uh, Home healthcare workers and things of that sort. The classic Wagner era model of unionism, which was workers get certified in one firm and then they negotiate with that management of that firm. You know, it works some places and UPS, you know, it does, it, it's there and maybe at Ford Motor Company or something, it, it works. But in, in so many other parts of the economy, it, it, that isn't the way it, it looks. You don't have a, a single firm you, you, or you have a, you know, a McDonald's which has franchises or you have uh, hospitals which are you know, uh, um, networks of them, uh, not to mention Silicon Valley. Uh, where the real production takes place in China. Um, so, you, you know, I think there are other mechanisms that, you know, which, you know, where, uh, whether wage boards, you know, or, or, or you know, po- sort of politicized bargaining where you essentially, you know, demand that, you know, uh, you know, $15, $20 an hour plus, you know, various benefits. And, you, you know, you, you demand that across an entire sector uh, of, you know, and, uh, or, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, I think they're new sort of experimental ways of thinking about this. The, the, again, that classic, you know, workers in one firm bargaining with the management of that one firm, that has less leverage these days than, than it used to because of the, of the change in the nature of American of world capitalism. And that was Nelson Lichtenstein at the University of California, Santa Barbara, talking about the latest kerfuffle at UPS. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg, I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we wish we had written, but alas, did not. And my pick comes from The Nation. It's called Women Have the Power to End the Student Debt Crisis by Serena Cerceres and Samantha Morgan. So they say that if you owe the bank a million bucks, the bank owns you. But if you owe a billion, you own the bank. The stakes of the student debt crisis are arguably even higher than that. It's pushing $1.5 trillion or so now. And women, for better or worse, have the biggest stake of all in that massive debt burden. They hold two-thirds of the total student debt burden, and they carry it quietly every day at work as they are often disrespected, abused, disenfranchised, underpaid, etc. disproportionately in today's workforce. The authors point out, quote, there are more women enrolled in college than their male counterparts, so it may seem fair that women would, on average, hold more student debt. 
However, women are still faced with the historic and present-day reality of the gender pay gap, making the ability to pay back any student debt more difficult. Because of that enduring pay gap and the greater difficulty in repaying loans that it represents, women are less able to fully participate and compete in their educational or professional fields of choice. This allows their male counterparts the ability to take more prestigious and higher-paying positions, further marginalizing and burdening female students. From the outset of a woman's life after graduating college, never mind what happens on campus, the gender pay gap decreases the value of their labor compared to their male peers. And meanwhile, the disproportionate debt load that they drag around with them from precarious job to precarious job, especially if they're millennials, gets heavier with each compounding debt as she collects bills for various payments, credit cards, cars, etc. And the pay gap persists, and their years in the workforce on an unequal plane deny them the same access to raises, promotions, and basic recognition for the work that they do. Mind you that this is just paid waged labor. The informal labor women contribute at home, as they have done for time immemorial, whether they are raising children on their own or as part of a household in which there is likely a major pay gap between the individual man and woman's earnings, they are basically unpaid for a lot of the family-based work that they do. The college degree for a large and ever-growing segment of today's women in America is where class lines are frequently crossed. It marks the threshold between working and middle class, supposedly. Increasingly, that line is blurred, and we're seeing it right now with the massive political unrest and social disarray that has disrupted our common notions of class in America. And women are waking up to this fact. As Morgan puts it, as a white woman, I am in a position of privilege as women of color face an even greater disproportionate economic burden. We must use our voices to end the student debt crisis as a tool to dismantle the systematic oppression of women that keeps us from fully competing and thriving in education and professional fields. This isn't just an argument for affirmative action. It's actually a political clarion call. As we've discussed before on Belabored, women's work is not only consistently undervalued in comparison to that of men, but the compounding burden of the so-called double shift at home and at work is virtually disregarded or distorted in our basic labor laws. And it's generally ignored in the way work is factored into our everyday social lives and culture. That has a profound impact on educational labor, particularly because academia is often where the worlds of home life and work life are inextricably intertwined. And that goes whether you are a female student or a female faculty member. Even if not every woman with student debt is politically galvanized by this realization, their distinct class position and their role in the broader system makes them a fulcrum of change in electoral politics. The authors conclude, women in outright majority of the population have the ability to elect representatives that will work to reduce the harm that student debt inflicts on all students, women in particular. The college campus is a site of many emerging political conflicts in which gender, race, labor, and culture are all engaged, both in tension and increasingly in solidarity. It's no wonder, then, that at very active college campuses, women are at the forefront of a movement against a debt crisis that entails all of these different facets of society. As much as debt is what divides the haves and have-nots in our society, it's also the great common denominator that links many social struggles and communities. And women are bearing the burden, but they also hold the key. 
This week, I not only want to say, Arg, I wish I'd written that, but Arg, I wish I'd started that magazine to our new friends at Commune Magazine, which just dropped its handful of stories on its lovely new website, and they are all worth a read. I have been waiting for this magazine to unleash itself ever since an image of a man pushing a busted chair down a street during a riot crossed my Twitter feed with a tagline, For a Life Worth Living. But in particular, I was drawn in by a piece that is now titled on the website, Communism Might Last a Million Years. What it really is is a review of sorts, looking over the life's work of two people who our listeners might not put in the same article, field, genre, or political whatever. Yet author Jasper Burns claims Ursula Le Guin and Moish Pistone both as giants of revolutionary thought and makes his case through vivid metaphor and an argument that if it embodies the politics that Commune wants to bring us for a life worth living is compelling as hell. In writing about Le Guin and particularly her book The Dispossessed, Burns writes about her ideas about work. Quote, while no one is forced to work on an heiress, the residents can refuse work and still have access to food, housing, and everything else, and may even choose to live on their own as hermits, Shevek and others feel a moral obligation to contribute given the fragility of life on the planet. They receive assignments from the Central Planning Board that arrive seemingly without much consideration of individual ability and desire. There are weekly rotations of maintenance work that everyone does and which Shevik enjoys, but he resents having to participate in the occasional expeditionary work campaigns that last for months on end, such as when he travels to the driest region to plant trees as part of a geoengineering project. But even on this trip, the resentment mellows and Shevik acknowledges that it is queer how proud you felt of what you got done this way, all together, what satisfaction it gave. Le Guin might seem confused or at least ambivalent on this point. Does the injunction to work arise as part of natural necessity, given by the desert conditions of the planet, or is it the result of excessive moralism and petrified bureaucracy? Perhaps the book is saying that we can only know what natural necessity is once we've gotten rid of moralism and bureaucracy, institutions which preserve in ghostly form the opposition between work and non-work that Pastone suggests is an impediment to human flourishing. End quote. In Postone's book, Time, Labor, and Social Domination, which, in full disclosure, I should tell you I haven't read, Burns writes, quote, The result is a theory that also leaves no aspect of the present world unquestioned. Traditional Marxism, he argues, has made labor the basis rather than the object of its critique, affirming it as a universal aspect of the human condition. A revolution that aims to emancipate labor rather than abolish it will end up perpetuating the proletarian condition. Returning to workers the entirety of the wealth they produce will not end their unfreedom if this still means that people have no say over the conditions of their own life. End quote. I would also just add that that's also not what Marx meant. What this means, though, is that we can't just think of the work of changing the world as a change in who pockets the profits. It is not just a question of redistribution. It is a question of what freedom from work might truly mean and whether it's possible. Why is it, Burns asks, that spending time with a child in one context might be something you do for fun, in another a familial obligation, and in yet another paid work? What would it mean to live in a society in which nothing people did took the form of labor, but merely appeared as a spectrum of voluntary activity, some of it pleasant, some of it tedious, but none of it a job? These days, with the collapse of the center, the rise of the left, and the fascist-leaning right, we are often faced with trying to imagine the impossible, the unimaginable. In moments like this, it is and would be a shame to narrow our definitions of what we want and what kind of change we think we can pursue. So welcome to the Comrades at Commune. May we keep imagining new utopias. 
That is all we have time for today. Thank you as always for listening and thanks especially to our lovely, lovely belabored sustaining members who give three or five or $10 a month to keep us bringing you the hottest of hot labor news. You can become one of them at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership, or you can also make a one-time donation to keep us going. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are interested in advertising with us. Thank you to Descent, as always, for hosting us, and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a delivery driver or migrant worker, if you are at UBS and voted against or for the current contract. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.